Hello everyone, welcome to episode 40 of ZK Live. It's Sunday night, we got a lot of great questions to answer. We're going to be talking about the paint heater, uh, the air assisted airless setup that we were using with that paint heater. Uh, we're going to be talking, we're going to answer some questions about uh, how we estimate projects. Uh, we're going to talk about some work-life balance and um, elevating the business, how I took the business uh, to the next level to where we are now. Um, some people had some questions about that. What was the big uh, inflection point? Um, but really, I think we should start with the inline paint heater because that was sort of the highlight of the week. Um, that was, we, we had that, the theory of it um, was really sound, but until you actually put it into practice, you know, you never know. So we paint, we use the paint heater um, it was about 105 degrees when we sprayed with it and that allowed the paint to be thin and go through a small orifice like if you were to add water or thinners to the paint uh, but we didn't have to actually thin it with anything so um, it dried faster it laid out beautifully um, and the warmth the the heat in the paint I think helped it also tack off faster so we didn't have to worry about drips and if any of you guys saw that post, we were able to get that paint to lay out um, absolutely beautifully, um, which is really exciting. So, um, speaking of that, the air assisted airless that we used, some people had. I didn't prepare like I normally do, and I didn't turn my Wi Fi enabled calling off. Sorry, I just got a phone call. Um, yes, that was Satin Eco that we had um satin eco which if any of you guys were following along earlier in the summer we had an airless with a 308 tip and really high humidity and dew points um which were making it so that the paint was not drying um in order to put enough paint on to not have drips we were um if we didn't want drips, we'd end up with dusting because the particle size of an airless, even a fine finish, low pressure tip at 308, the particle size is so much larger than what we found when we used the air assisted airless, um, that that was an issue. And then also just the humidity, uh, was preventing. We even used, um, accelerant, like an accelerator to try to make the paint dry faster in the paint. And that still wasn't working. Um, so we waited till we had better weather, um, when the weather got to where we wanted it to be, um, we were able to spray. And then the difference in the spray pattern with the air assisted airless with the heater and the airless was like night and day. I mean, I, the overspray was way less and the particle size, like just when you looked at the size of those little dots of black paint was just minuscule. So the control that I, I was able to have over that paint um was absolutely phenomenal so we're gonna be doing more testing with um heated paint um but it's it's fairly well known that heated paint um thin heat heating paint will make it thinner and that's why we thin paint is so that it's thinner so that it will go through smaller tips and atomize better so the idea that we were able to use heat to thin our paint um it was awesome. So general finishes makes a 
product called Accelerator for water-based coatings. It makes water-based coatings dry faster. So it's a, it's a rarely used product. I don't think a lot of people know it exists, um, but it will make paint dry faster and cure a little bit faster as well, I believe. I'm not sure about that part. Um, but General Finish is where it's at for extender and accelerator. Um, so yeah, we, that, that paint heater, man, let me tell you, we're going to be using it a lot. There's no question. We, we, we often thin our paint. Um, and so if we can apply a higher solids content product to a surface, that's always going to be better, right? Cause if you thin your paint 30% and you put it on the wall, 30% of what you put on the wall is going to evaporate off. Um, well, really more than that, because there's stuff that you put on the wall that's going to evaporate off as well, the solvents in the paint. Um, so it, it gives you a, a better mill build, or really I think we were able to apply a thinner coat of paint and still uh, produce a great result because we were pure, putting undiluted paint on the surface. Um, and the control, I mean, if you guys saw that post, you can see there's the videos of it wet. And it's, it looks like it's almost mirror finish as that perfect, that perfect orange peel that you want. Like any of you guys that spray paint, when you come, to, if you come to ZK finishing school, we teach this stuff too. But like when you spray paint, you want to look for a certain texture in the paint after you spray it. That's going to equal the smoothest finish possible later because no paint that I've ever experienced, no matter how well you lay it down, it never lays down instantly looking like glass right? It, it, it all has some sort of a texture to it. And then it, it lays out as it dries together. So you, you always want to be training your eye toward what is the look of the paint being applied that is going to get me the best results at the end. And so I was able to, um, apply the right amount of paint with the air assisted airless to get that not like little tiny orange peel look, but more like cottage cheesy, like large, larger humps. That's kind of the look that you want that, that larger humps. Anyone who sprays water-based coatings at a high level knows like when you see that, like, like cottage cheesy humps, you know, that it, uh, that's like, that's what you want. And it's going to lay out and, and dry real, real smooth. Um, it's like sort of a cabinet finishing technique or, or just that level of finish. So the time it took from the time we put that paint on, we got that perfect like cottage cheese hump orange peel. <laughs> My wife is like dying at the disgusting description. Um, to the time that it tacked off and dried out and laid out, I mean, it was like, I would say 10 minutes max, like super quick with no accelerator. I had an accelerator on site in case, but with no accelerator, um, I was able, we were able to get that paint to lay out, but still dry fast. Like it was like the perfect combination. So it was, it could have been a perfect storm of the weather and the conditions, but I, I know for a fact that that paint heater did a massive, helped us to achieve what we were able to achieve. And without it, we could not have done the same thing. Um, but I've not people, some, some people ask me some questions. I don't, I didn't, I didn't run those same setups without, I didn't run the air systems without heat. Um, but I know that I would have had to do things to manipulate the paint to get it to come out the way it did. Um, and the temperature of it wouldn't have been as high, so it wouldn't have tacked off as fast. So, um, 
this is amazing. Someone said that the stream stopped. Can everybody hear me? Um, I'm good. I'm glad Russell just came on because he asked, he asked a question too that I, I'm going to get to. Um, but we are talking about Air Sisterless right now, Russell. Um, but the, the, really, for me, the difference in what when we were spraying black water-based satin vertical. Um, spraying vertical obviously is way harder than spraying horizontal in any circumstance, always. Um, but spraying black is obviously the hardest of all the colors to spray. Right? Anyone that sprays black has ever sprayed black paint or worked with black paint knows that it, it shows everything afterwards. The way white, I mean, no offense, but we've, we've probably all seen it on here and some of we've all maybe done it. But if you watch some, some uh, Instagram videos of people spraying white, like, I don't know what they're spraying, white trim paint, man, I've seen some horrible, horrible technique. As far as like, a technique that does not apply the same amount of product to all surfaces. I think that when you get into using black and when you get into doing gloss, you you start to have to apply, I mean, you really have to apply the same amount of coating thickness, mill thickness to all surfaces. That requires like, like a, like, like when you plan a robot, the robots that spray, right? They have a very like planned out spray pattern. That requires spraying like a robot, right? Trying to put the exactly the same distance from every surface and, and understanding how do I apply the same amount of paint to all surfaces, right? And there is a, a, a satin or a low sheen white paint from a domestic manufacturer is not gonna be very difficult to make it look nice, right? White already is very forgiving those products are designed to be easy to spray, right? They're not high performance products, they're easy to use mass market products. So the the technique that's required, like the, we had to get the exactly the same amount of paint on all surfaces, right? And which is so precise, right? So now if, if you have a, my hands are apart right now, if you have like a, a nine or 10 foot wide swath that you need to spray on a vertical section like we did, right? And it's 20 feet up. I didn't have scaffolding quite high enough to get there. So I'm on a ladder and now I, and I can't go and run the whole distance. There was a couple sections at the top at least where I had to spray to a point and then do a bunch like that and then spray to a point. And now there's this overlap section. And maybe if you're a computer with a robot, you can spray, you can start and stop at exactly the same spot and have it come down and have that overlap be the exactly the same amount of paint that you had when you're doing long straight sections with a 50%, actually did about a 70% overlap um, when I sprayed the the black that time but anytime you meet two sections in the middle of a panel I mean that is not if you can find a way to not have to do it you don't want to have to do it when you're spraying these high-level coatings with very thin margins of error um, but I was able to in a couple sections do that and feather the those patterns out and not have issues where with the airless, I had to do, I could never have done that. You just don't, the control is not there with an airless 308, 
the same way that we had. I mean, we were running the air assisted airless allowed with the heated paint allowed us to run. We were at about a thousand PSI, something like that, 900 to a thousand PSI, um, and about 35 pounds of air pressure. Um, which when you sprayed that versus spraying a 308 fine finish, low pressure, it, I mean, it's just a night and day difference as far as the control and, and I mean, the gun, a, just the gun alone is so much nicer and the control and there's no spits when you pull the trigger on a good air assisted airless gun. Right. Um, so all of those things sort of combined where I was able to spray that wall and not like freak out about the three times where I blended them in the middle. Um, but if you don't spray black vertical with clients who want their panels to look like sheets of metal, like that column, someone said, is that wood or a sheet of metal? That's what the client was requesting. They wanted this stuff to look like sheets of metal that, and it wasn't, I mean, it's wood. Um, so every, everything has to be so perfect when you're trying to apply that stuff. Uh, it can be maddening. And oftentimes people have asked before, like, sometimes you're just like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I in a world where everything has these tiny margins of error? Why can't I just take some like Benjamin more advanced and with, you know, some white Benjamin more advanced with a 308 tip and just like go spray trim. And like, if I want to, if I want to go back and like, you see probably everyone that sprays on Instagram, most people, I mean, it's so hard not to do when you spray the way we spray, like I've trained myself not to, but everyone goes back at the end and just like hits it one more time. Right. Like how many times you see somebody like spray out a door casing, right. And then like, then they go to look at it and it's like, if you don't spray something one more time, I mean, that takes a, a lot of self-control, right? We all know that feeling of like, let me just like one more time, right? You can't do that stuff when you're talking about the gloss that we spray or dark colors vertical with in the situation I was at. Like there's not a really, either you put enough paint on the first time that it's all even or you didn't. There's not a lot of like, let me go back and hit a spot kind of thing. Um, because the odds that you're going to hit that exact spot with the exact amount of paint that you needed to level everything else out are so slim that we really try to practice never going back and like, we'll go back and look at it to see does the whole thing need another coat? Like when we spray cabinet doors or something or, or, or a door if, if you're cross hatching and, and you're not quite sure, but rarely are you going to ever see us go back and like, just like spot hit one section or two sections. Like I love, I love it. it. It feels so good, right? Everybody loves that, but it's really, if you're trying to apply the same mill thickness to every surface, that kind of has to be done the first go around. Um, in my experience, at least. Um, so yeah, nothing but great things to say about the heater. A lot more testing is, is going to come. Um, also, amazing i mean anyone that's used an air assisted airless versus an airless um knows that the control is is so much better um and oftentimes you're sacrificing like the paint laying out because you're adding air to a water-based coating which so someone asked a question uh russell asked this question earlier and i'll put it up now um We've not done extensive, extensive testing, but the theory is there. And really what we do is just try to dial in the spray pattern. Um, at ZK Finishing School, we talk about that. I go through in a detailed um, breakdown of how we dial in a gun. But dialing in that gun 
so that you get the right spray pattern with yes we're i would much rather have a higher fluid pressure and a lower air pressure using a water-based coating um because i'm trying to minimize the air someone asked me um why did you cool the air if you're heating the paint and the answer is we honestly in a perfect world we wouldn't use air right because air is going to make the paint we want the paint to stay open long enough this water-based paints to lay out right and if we blow a bunch of air on it as the paint's hitting it like we're already accelerating that drying and it may you know it, in some cases it sort of it reduces the um ex how the open time and which reduces the way the paint lays out so when we're dialing in, dialing in air assisted airless equipment with water-based coatings we're definitely looking to have a higher fluid pressure and a lower air pressure Right. You can always kind of play with those and you can if you reduce your fluid pressure down to a point where you're tailing again, you can sometimes kick on a little more air to get rid of the tailing. But really, we want to reduce the volume of air with water based coatings because it's it's not it's reducing the air, the open time of the coating. Um, just the nature of blowing air on something. Right. You blow on air. It's going to dry off like your skin if it's wet. Um, same thing with the paint. But when you spray with the air assisted airless, the air is helping to atomize the paint even finer. Um, if you take the atom, the size particles that we had with that gun and compare them to an airless, they're just not in the same ballpark. In my experience, in that situation with that product, um, the nature of the paint coming out through still an airless tip and then being hit by air again, right? By like a bunch of shots of air. It is massively disrupting and hit and atomizing that paint. So, yes, we definitely are look. We're not. I, I would rather have a high fluid pressure and a low air pressure um, when using an air assisted airless with a water based coating. Um, but I I will also say I have not Eric Reason, and I have not done a bunch of very systematic A B testing with fluid pressures, air pressures. That's mostly theory put into practice as quickly as possible and getting good results. I'm not gonna sit here and say that I've done an air reason level of A-B testing, which if we could all be Eric reason and have a little more Eric reason mentality in our lives, I think we could all benefit because that true A-B testing is so valuable. Not just saying, well, I did it one time and it seemed to work. Like, yeah, I just did it and I had success, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you this is the only way to do it. And I'm not going to sit here and, and act like I know exactly why. I, I know the theory behind what we did. And I know, you know, generally why it worked. But I'm not going to sit here and say, well, I tried it three other ways with the exact same pump. And I those didn't work out as well as this one. I didn't go that deep. I was trying to get the job done. And we were able to achieve an amazing result. Um, I hope that answers your question. Uh, does, if, does anyone listen to Seth Godin's podcast? He always asks questions and he's like, I hope that answers your question. Um, all right. This is my buddy Caesar. He came to the first, um, the first class for ZK finishing school. The second class for ZK finishing school is this weekend, which is very exciting. Uh, we have our second group of people. We have the third group is already full. And then we're booking December right now, and December's almost full. 
Um, I it's called Akimbo. I listen to all. I've I've listened to every episode of Akimbo. It's my favorite podcast right now, and it's the one I think gives me the greatest competitive advantage in the marketplace. Every time I listen to a Seth Godin episode, I feel like I got one step ahead of my competition. Um, he's just such a seminal thinker. Like hit, the way he sees the world is so unique and is so smart. Um, I, I feel like I'm not getting regurgitated like stuff that's already out in the ether. He's like really coming up with unique perspectives on stuff. I uh, couldn't, I can't say enough about Seth Godin. Um, so the question is from Caesar who's Caesar's coming up. So we have three, we have three spots left for the social media marketing course, which is October 17th and 18th. I've reduced the price to 1500 um, because I don't have the overhead and it's just gonna be me and five or six people. So we have three people signed up already. If you wanna do that, I, I would encourage everyone, I know everyone wants to learn how to apply paint at a high level and that is awesome. But if you can't sell that work and you're not getting consistently awesome projects through your social media, um, I think we can help a lot. I'm really excited about that class. Um, but yeah, so Caesar's coming up and I'm really excited. He'll be, he'll be coming back. He'll be there twice. He'll be our first, um, returning ZK finishing school, um, alumni, which is pretty cool. But when he was at our shop, he saw the paint heater and we hadn't used it yet. So I guess we kind of answered a lot of his questions here. Um, but yeah, I, couldn't be more excited about the potential for this paint heater and what, um, what it could do, what it can do and what it will do for us. Um, let's see, let's talk more about air assisted airlesses and then we'll, we'll stop beating this horse, that horse. Um, all right. This is another guy who's coming up. Uh, I believe he's coming up to ZK finishing school this weekend as well. Uh, this coming weekend. So he said, air assisted airless explanation on why and benefits drawbacks. So I kind of went over a little bit of this stuff. Um, you're going to get lower fluid pressures, right? So I, we had the fluid somewhat high, even at a, a thousand PSI out of an air assisted airless is, is kind of is, is on the high side. Um, the class is in Rhode Island. And if you send an email to ZK finishing school at gmail.com, uh, my assistant will get back to you. If you follow us on Instagram, we are ZK Finishing School. Uh, I think it's ZK underscore finishing underscore school. Um, but if you search ZK Finishing School, you should find it. Um, I, I've been slacking. I have not got a groove. I haven't worked out my, uh, what we'll probably do at the social media thing is work out as a case study, my social media blueprint for ZK Finishing School because I don't have one right now. And so it's causing me to not post because I don't have a plan. And I think that's very important with social media is to have a plan that you, all of your posts are at least part of a bigger plan and not just like off the cuff completely. Um, you know, I think there's some good parts to being off the cuff with stories and stuff, but um, the more you can be thoughtful about your, your feed so that when a ideal client stumbles upon you and the number of ways that they can stumble upon you, uh, they can very quickly see what you're up to. Um, so air assisted airless explanation, um, definitely you can apply coatings at a lower, excuse me, a lowered fluid pressure, which is, and, and the guns, if anyone, like the gun on an air assisted airless, it's, I mean, they're generally 900 to a thousand dollar guns, eight to a thousand dollar guns. Like they're, the gun alone is a far more 
sophisticated piece of equipment. When you pull that trigger, you'll when you put one of those these guns in your hand, whether it be a, a, a Kremlin golden gun, the Excite gun, which is a tremendous gun, whether it's the uh, Wagner GM 4700, which is the one that we just used, that's also a phenomenal gun. Um, I definitely, I'm leaning toward liking that gun more. I haven't used it a lot, but there's a lot of reasons why it's probably a superior gun to the golden gun. Um, but when you hold those guns in your hands, you'll see why they cost so much and they're just, they're so much more refined. So when you want to like, let's pull the trigger quick, 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 and you're trying to achieve a high level finish, there's no spits, right? We all know with an airless gun, there's quite often there can be spitting at when you pull the trigger and when you let go there, there there's can be issues with that those guns are you know two to four hundred dollar guns they're just they're they're a little bit different and and again if you're not applying super high level coatings if you're applying some like white satin like no one's ever going to see those um so definitely you get a lot more control over your spray pattern um on, a, on an air assisted airless gun that we're talking about like i can take my fan pattern and have it be as wide as my tip goes so i might use a 14 which is like i might have a 12 inch wide fan right fully open fan 12 inches wide there's a dial on the gun that can change my fan all the way down to like a, a circle right so the control that you can get where you can be spraying like a cabinet box, right? And, and bring the fan down to be two or three inches wide. And then when you do the spray the inside of the cabinet, you just like quickly whoop. And now you're spraying a 14 inch wide pattern. So the air assisted aerosols give you a lot more control over the gun much quicker without switching tips. And they allow you to spray paint at a much lower PSI. Um, so they, and, and the atomization is much finer. So the fact that you have essentially the same, it's the same thing. It's an airless tip for all like some intensive purposes, right? It's an airless tip. The paint comes out like an airless would. But then if you look at these air caps, there's like anywhere from like six to 10 orifices that are shooting little tiny blasts of air at that paint coming out, which like atomizes the paint even more, right? So you're, you're breaking down your paint into really, really tiny particles. So, which is bet, you know, the smaller the particle, the better for getting it all to coalesce into one and lay out and still keep a nice thin coating, right? With some of the airless, like the airless we were using for that black, my issue was the particle size was so large that when I would spray a section, if I didn't spray enough paint, it wouldn't, all the particles wouldn't come together, coalesce and form one film. So I had to put a much thicker amount of paint on to get all those large particles to come together, right? When it's tiny, tiny particles, you can put a thinner layer of paint on for them all to come together and form a layer. And when you spray with both pro machines, the same product, you will see there is a pretty big difference between those two. And when you get those small atomiz the fine atomization, there's a huge advantages. Um, it's, you get a lot of the advantages of, of an HVLP, um, which most people think of as the turbine units, but you get that turbine unit atomization particle size with the speed of an airless, right? You have a lot more paint coming out per minute than with a, you know, a turbine unit. You're going to, you know, you'll be there all day spraying a whole kitchen with a turbine unit where with an air assisted airless, it's so much faster. It's the speed of an airless. 
Um, so air assisted airless has a lot of advantages. Those pumps are also designed to hold in a consistent pressure at much lower pressures. So if you were to spray thinner coatings, right, you might only need to be at 400 or 500 PSI um, of fluid pressure. Well, if you go to your Graco or your Titan airless machine and you dial in 400 PSI, they won't turn on. Like they're not designed to run at low PSIs like that. Um, so there's a big advantage there as well. <coughs> All right. Uh, I don't know what Scotch 233 is though. Um, sorry, you'll have to clarify what that means. That's probably a number of some grade of tape, but we call them by their color because we're simple creatures. I don't call paint that by its number, which I probably should. Let's see if we have any more paint spraying, actual paint spraying. Um, uh, this guy, this is a question that's a little bit too broad, and I think we've sort of talked about this on other episodes. What type of sprayer do you use to work with, um, I'm guessing, fine paints of Europe? And what tip? Um, so first of all, Fine Paints of Europe is a brand of paint. I had to tell a guy that this weekend who called me and wanted to get some advice on, he was having trouble with the paint. And I think, I wish painters would do a little more homework on stuff before they try, especially with FPE, before they just start doing it on jobs. I, it, I was a little frustrated talking to this guy. He was a nice guy. It wasn't his fault. His boss told him to call me. But like, this is not just like switch out the paint and go about it. Like you really should be doing some testing. Um, so really I think there's depends on the product from fine paints of Europe. That's a brand of paint. So they sell a number of products, but, um, I would say, you know, we're looking at air assisted airless for the eco and, and for larger projects with the Holland lac. Uh, we're spraying a ceiling this week, and we'll be using the air-assisted airless to spray Holland lac. Um, on small projects, I think a conventional spray cup gun is the way to go. Um, there's no question. If you get a SATA X5500, SATA Jet X5500 with a 1.3 or a 1.4 tip, and you put some FPE Holland lac in there and thin it out enough, when you anyone who comes to ZK Finishing School has seen... The atomization that comes from a SATA jet is out of this world. It's nothing like what comes from a turbine unit. And someone asked me about that. And then we did, I was like, look up, look, go do the homework. Go see how many CFM of air comes from a turbine unit. And if you look it up, I think the, the six stage turbine units might have three to four PSI, CFM, sorry, three to four CFM of airflow, right? That's cubic feet per minute. The SATA jet is running 12 to 13 CFM. So you're getting four times the volume of air coming out of that sprayer tip, which is going to now atomize your paint that much finer. Um, so really, I know people are using turbine units and they're getting good results. Um, and if that's what you have, start with the turbine unit and play around with it. But I think at the highest level, when you use a SATA, you will see there is, there's something to behold those guns. I hope that answered your question. But yes, always do your homework. There are so many new greens. Oh yeah, yeah, with green tapes. Um, all right, let's, so we kind of, uh, let's answer this question. 
Gloss doors with fine paints are viewed. You end up with cracks around the panels after a years. After years, I'm guessing. Um, so I have not experienced that. We we generally do not caulk the panel our our panels on front doors though. Um, we treat them with wood preserve. It really depends on the project and the quality of the door. Um, and so, but I would say I have not. Um, yes, you could write an entire book on spraying. Someone probably should. At some point, I'll probably just start writing something because I answer the same questions so often. But um, there is a lot to, to get into when you talk about sprayers. And uh, everyone has, all the manufacturers have, you know, they have their two cents. But sometimes it's it's a little bit, um, sometimes they have their, their, I don't know. It's not the most objective information when you talk to the manufacturers about how their products relate to other products. Sometimes it is, but you have to like do your homework. Um, I've never experienced cracking at the panels. Um, I have on kitchen cabinets that we caulked when the client insisted that we caulk these panels that I didn't want to caulk. And then sure enough, like they did shrink. Uh, we had done a hall knock satin kitchen with that for that project. Um, but for the most part, I have not seen a lot. I know some guys have, it really depends on the quality of the door and the whole process and what did you do? Um, but the, again, fine paints of Europe is a brand of paint. So I'm assuming you're talking about Holland Lack on the doors. Holland Lack is still a one part product. It's an oil enamel. It does dry hard, but it has some amount of flex to it. Not a ton, but, um, it's, uh, it has a little bit of flex and will move a little bit with the expansion and contraction of wood. Um, obviously not holding raised panels as they move a ton. Um, I've not experienced, I've not had any bad experiences with it, but it is definitely something that could happen. Uh, wood moves. There's no question. Um, all right. So I think we got the paint sprint application stuff out of the way. Um, so, oh, here's one more. So I have, I have a bunch of crock pots. We have used lots of crock pots and you can heat up paint in a crock pot. We, I think we have four of them. We used to do that. Um, the problem, the tough part about that is consistency. So we would put water in a crock pot and we would heat up our paint and it's just really hard to keep it consistent. So yes, that is a way to do it there. I know lots of guys that were heating up their paint before they brush it. Um, that is a thing you can do. Um, and it will help. Um, and I've, I've definitely run eco specifically in crock pots out of an airless. Um, but the problem is you just, it's hard to get consistent, um, temperatures. If you can, if you can figure it out, it's a good like way to start. Um, it's definitely something to experiment with, um, uh, testing how the, how warm the paint is after it goes through the line and gets there. Um, it's, that's a whole thing but it, it's you lose some of that control versus just a controlled a, a very dialed in machine that has a thermometer that's keeping the paint going through the line at a certain temperature but it's definitely something to experiment with and and will work if you can figure it out um okay let's go here What was the most crucial move you made that elevated your business to the next level? Um, I mean, I would say at the top of the list 
is the decision to only use fine paints of Europe. Um, that that was a crazy move in hindsight. It was a very audacious thing to do. I was very lucky at the time. I had I didn't have a lot of business. I didn't have a lot of employees, team members. I was paying everybody under the books any on the off the books anyway. I was like, you know, I was like five years ago now, four years ago. I I didn't have much, and I didn't I wasn't married at the time, and I didn't have kids, and I didn't I didn't make much money, so I was able to take this like huge 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 risk, right? And it was a calculated risk, but I decided I was going to stop using paint that was not fine paints of Europe. Uh, which meant that pretty much all of my existing clients were not going to continue to be clients. Um, and that mo a lot of my contacts were not going to continue to hire me going forward. Um, they just, they were not interested in paying more money for a higher quality painting product. Um, so, but I, I, you know, I sort of anticipated that a little bit. Um, but I, I had this belief that I was going to get, I was going to be stuck doing what I was doing if I didn't make some sort of major change as far as how I was perceived in the market and also my institutional knowledge, right? The company, like, like the products and processes that we used, if we were switching back and forth all the time, that was going to be really hard to achieve high level product. And if I was in clients' minds as the guy you can call for anything, it was going to be a lot harder for them to, for me to get those high end projects, fine finish projects. So the theory was that, how do I get to the next level? Well, get in everyone's mind as the guy that does high quality work. And Five Paints of Europe was the perfect way to do that, right? And that's what I did. And I told, I started telling everyone, we would get GCs who would call that we'd work for. And I'd say like, look, I only use Five Paints of Europe. Um, and they would be like, all right, well, we don't want to do that here. And I would say, all right, you know, Good luck. Call me when you have a project where you need a high level finish. And that went on for, I don't know, six months, six to eight months. In that time, I was buying furniture in Vermont when I'd go see my in-laws and I'd bring it down to the shop and we would spray Holleck Brilliant on pieces of furniture. Uh, I had this like brilliant idea. I was going to take all this furniture from Vermont, this mid-century modern stuff, and I was going to spray it with these high gloss finishes and I was going to sell it for this huge markup and they was going to pay for our R&D. Uh, the truth is that's not how custom furniture works. Um, people generally are not going to pay very much for already painted furniture. They want to, they'll pay a premium if they pick the colors and pick the sheens and you have a reputation Then yeah, you can get more money for stuff, but, uh, doing it as a spec kind of thing turned out to be horrible. I, I consigned a bunch of it to a designer. They sold it. I mean, I lost my shirt. I didn't make any money, but we got a lot of institutional knowledge. Like we learned how to spray. We got a lot of spraying under our belts of Hallnack. Um, and so that I was working that, right? I was working the execution in on one side, um, just finding ways, upgrading the projects I was on to find paints of Europe um, that I'd sold maybe for Benjamin Moore or Sherman Williams stuff. And I just like, you know what? When I went to certification, that's what the owner of Fine Paints said. He's like, just start using the paint. He's like, stop making excuses and start using the paint. If you want to do this stuff, like you just got to use the paint. And, you know, which sounded really salesy to me and was sort of like, you know, 
but as I, I mean, as I started to do it, I definitely started to realize like there's something to this. Our standard now, like if we're going to paint walls, like we're painting walls on the project that we're doing. Um, we just did a kitchen cabinet refinish and now we're doing an entry hall. Like we're just using Euro Lux flat on the walls. Like I didn't tell her like, well, there's this paint from Benjamin Moore. There's this paint. Like, no, we're just using Euro Lux on the walls and we're just going to use eco satin on the trim. Like that's just what we're going to do. And when I started to make that mindset change of like, that's just what we're going to do. Now I've had a, a small handful of projects where we have not used FPE, but only in like the last year and only because of extenuating circumstances that I deemed that it made sense to use non FPE products, one part products. Now, obviously 2k poly, that's a whole other thing, but, um, I just started telling designers, architects, builders, clients, like, here's what we do. Like we, we apply five bits a year. Let me show you some of the work we're doing at a high level. I'm a certified painter. And what would, what, and I barely made it through the winter, but I was in Pete clients heads and people's heads is like the guy you call for high quality because I it's like that helped people remember, right? People remember stories. That was a good story that people could remember. Like, Oh, this guy's doing stuff at a high level. I remember him telling me like, and so, you know, lots of times the designers might be one in 10 projects that a designer does. Does the client care about coatings and have the budget to want to pay for paint upgrade and not for just the furnishings upgrade or, you know, more square footage in the, in the house upgrade. Like not every client wants to pay the premium for paint, but the ones that did, we would start to get jobs and I would, or when phone calls would come in, I would take everyone way more seriously than I do now. And I would try to find ways to get people to just let me use fine paints and maybe pay me a small premium just to get in my portfolio. Um, eventually it was just like, like John just said, you know, it, this is just what we do. And so I had, I was getting efficiencies where my people like knew what to do. And like, I don't know what, like, yeah, my paint just costs 150 bucks. So John just said, when you start treating it all as this is just what we do, eventually it's not really an option to go lower. Now paint just costs $150 a gallon. It is what it is. That's a hundred percent been my truth. Like, yeah, our paint just our paint is our paint. Labor is a majority of what we do anyway. So yes, fine paints of Europe is just what we use for paint. So when I made that decision, now a lot of things came with that decision. Like you can't just do that and then do everything else the same way you were doing it before and expect to find success, right? That's building Lamborghinis and selling them from Toyota dealerships. So I hired a consultant, a fine paints of Europe expert guy, a guy who had run a successful high-end painting company. And uh, I had him come in and spend a weekend with me, actually two weekends. And he, for the rest of my life, fundamentally changed my mindset. This is why we have ZK Finishing School and why I would encourage you guys to come to the social media weekend, even though I know it's not as sexy as how do you apply high gloss, but the mindset change that comes from, um, marketing from understanding what am I trying to do here and how do I sell and market this product? That mindset set set change started me on the path, right? Like I want, I had an idea of what I was doing, but I was still kind of doing it from my old paradigm. And Instead, my consultant encouraged me to change the paradigm and look at these from a completely different perspective. And some of the stuff he said was 
bonkers. But most, like, a lot of the de- the actual things, they probably would have worked. But a lot of the stuff was kind of over the top. But it, it was the mindset is, is where he was really effective in changing me for the good. Like, I stopped thinking about this as just, like, applying paint. And, like, how do I go sell this luxury product? It's going to be sold differently. So I would say that the biggest move that I made to elevate my business to the next level was deciding to only use fine paints of Europe. Now, obviously I'm not going to recommend everybody do that. It takes a lot of things going for you. Um, it requires a, you have to have a market that can bear your, your services. It doesn't matter if you have the best widget in the world. If nobody wants that widget or can afford it, no one's going to buy it. So, I think the first thing is we're in a market and we travel for it, but we're in a market that can bear or has demand for high quality finishing, right? Painting. So step one is that I think I also have natural abilities and skill sets that lent themselves to a higher end product, right? I love the coding stuff. I love to talk about this stuff. Uh, I, I'm I'm like fancy. I like I am a snob about a lot of stuff. People that know me know I like nice things. So I was a, like, this was just one more thing. Like I, like my natural tendencies went to like, what's the best paint? Like how, what's the best sprayer? What's like, I, I like, I'm amazed by human ingenuity and like what we can do when we put our minds to it. And if price is not as big of an issue. And so I knew my natural skill set would lend itself toward me selling high end work. It's not impossible to sell high-end work if you have a giant face tattoo. Not impossible. But I will say that it would probably make it more difficult to sell a high-end paint job to a high-end client if you have a face tattoo. Right? Like, as an extreme example. Like, it's not something that's going to stop you from selling it, but it's going to be a hurdle that you have to overcome. And I think that we all have those in life. It's like, who am I? What am I good at? And how am I going to take the hurdles away and use my strengths, right? So that that's an analogy. It's a, it's a metaphor. I'm not talking about like, I'm, if you have a face tattoo, I'm, sh- you, I'm sure you can sell great work. Like, that's, but I, I, I'm sure that in an A-B scenario, it's not helping, right? And it's, it's a hurdle you'll have to overcome. And so I just was like, all right, I think I also had... Um, the ability to communicate with clients and I like nice things. And I like, I like the coding science. Like I'm a nerd about codings. I like to understand why. So I was able to, all of me was going to be really good at doing five pages of Europe coding application. Right? So I had a market, I had natural ability already, a desire to want to talk about paint. I'm talking about paint right now on a Sunday night. Like I had that built into me. I have a deep desire to go, to the craziest levels of paint. I don't, I'm not a just like slap it on mentality type of guy. And if that is you, like there's a different model that I would recommend going down. Like just serve different clients that really care about that. But like use your natural abilities, whatever they may be. Uh, Don't, I try not to fight them too much. I try to hire for my, my, my gaps and my uh, personality and who I am rather than try to spend a bunch of time getting them up to par where I could be really doubling down on my strengths. Um, I, that's just my mentality. So I think there was that. Um, and then the the huge, the biggest piece of all of this is probably like, I didn't have a family and I didn't have, you know, 
a bunch of like I was able to take risk. I was in a spot where I didn't need stability. And I am I'm an entrepreneur. Like I have a sick ability to be comfortable with risk. I have a very risk averse family generally. Like my mom is the opposite of me. And she thinks everything I do is crazy and she's worried for me all the time. And if you're a worried type of guy, like entrepreneurship is going to be tough. And especially doing things like my, what I did. So I don't think it's for everybody, but I think I sort of, I looked around and I did an honest assessment of myself and I was like, I think I have what it, I think, I think this will work. Like I've done a, a risk analysis and all things point to this might work out actually. And so I went with it and I committed to it and I only used five pages of Europe and I barely made it through the winter. I don't even remember how we did it, man, by the skin of my teeth. And if I did work that wasn't FPE, I didn't talk about it. I didn't post about it. And it was enough just to like, so we could eat that week. And it was really tough times, but we started to build, right? It's the flywheel effect. Like I was pushing in one direction now. And so it's really hard to start pushing that merry-go-round the first time when it's a dead stop, right? It's a little greased up. It's a little like rusted up at the axle, right? It's hard to get pushing. But if you keep pushing in the same direction long enough, it gets easier and easier and easier. And as long as you continue to push in the same direction on that Ferris, on that merry-go-round, not Ferris wheel, continuously pushing, eventually that thing is flying, right? And you're just sitting here going like, tap, 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 and it's flying, but it takes massive amount of work to start it. And if this is not my idea, by the way, this is the flywheel effect from good to great. I did not come up with this. It's too smart, way too good for that. But I read that book, a client gave me that book. I read that book and I was like, oh, that makes sense to me. But if, if you are pushing in one direction on that merry-go-round early stages, right? One for, for two minutes. And then you turn around and you like push the other direction for a minute and then you go back and you push in the direction that you really want to go but then you turn around and you push back like you're never going to get that thing spinning so for me that's what committing to fpe was was like i'm only going to push this thing in one direction and I'm, and that's going to hopefully eventually give me some momentum and i think right now it's fair to say we have a decent amount of momentum and that's come from consistent pushing in one direction So, United Pro Painting says, not many clients are willing to use Fine Paints of Europe. Um, that's your clients today are not, right? The people who you know, right? Because you're not using a bunch of it, so you're not in the world that uses it all the time. And I wasn't either. Um, I'm just like, you know what I'm saying, right? I felt like you, but I also believed, I, met, I went to Fine Paint Certification and I met people who were using a bunch of this stuff. So I'm like, all right, well, there is evidence out there that people are doing this and using lots of this paint, even though I don't know any of them, right? All my clients, the day I, before I decided I was only going to use Fine Paints of Europe, they weren't using Fine Paints of Europe and they didn't want anything to do with it for the most part. So yeah, it would have been, it was, it was easy at that point to say, well, no one wants, not a lot of people want to pay for Fine Paints of Europe. Generally, if you look at the, like the world, in America, like, yes, you're right. Obviously a very small percentage of people want to actually pay for fine paints of Europe paint. There's fine paints is used in a very small percentage of projects in this country for painting. 
but I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about or if you meant just like in your experience, people don't want to use it. I would say that there's still a bunch of people out there. I mean, we've, I found them that want it, but it requires so much more than just, I'm, I, I know how to use the paint now. That's like, that's not, that doesn't cut it. Right. So, and, and that's why, again, man, I, I, that's the last time I'll pitch this, but I really think guys who are trying to get to that next level and sell and market this stuff, the social media weekend that we have coming up is where you we're going to go deep into the, the marketing. Like, what is our model here? Who are we trying to speak to? What is our company good at? What, what makes us special and how are we going to market that to people so that we can get the kind of work that we want? That requires a lot of thought. It can't be what you, what you did to get these clients you have now is not going to be what you'll do to get those other clients, right? So it requires a mindset change. So I know what you're saying, but I think over time, if you commit to it, there's a way to push in the right direction to do, because it's not about just applying paint, the fine paints of Europe, because guess what? Like it, that's not enough. Like the paint comes after you have to have a high end sales process, a high end marketing, uh, image you have to have a high end all your people in your company have to in 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 have to um the word is escaping me they have to live they have to be high end right if if you will right they they have to be of a carry themselves differently than if they were on a commercial job right like there's so many pieces that have to come into place to do a, a the what 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 I do like to do five paints of Europe to go through the volume of paint that I use. Like, yeah, dude, if I showed up to the job site with a big beard and like ratty, like and like painted up clothes, or I, I used, to, I, I guarantee you, I've been on, I've, I've been on estimates wearing basketball shorts. Guarantee it. When I first started this, like I hated wearing painter's pants. I used to wear basketball shorts when I painted all the time. I didn't know any better, right? And I guarantee you, I've, I've showed up on job sites to estimate when I very, very, very first started 10 years ago, I was wearing basketball shorts, right? And like sneakers, right? So I like, yes, I have to be clean cut in order to sell these types of jobs because it's an image thing. You're selling the image afterwards before you even do it. So every piece has to be in alignment. Um, so I think I've beat that, like I keep saying. I think I've gone over that pretty well. Um, if you could answer this as back in your little giant days, how could I use fine paints of Europe to do an accent wall as far as the joint compound best kind of use to level the wall? All right. If if you are, yes, back when I was my little giant ladder, like honestly, um, how could you? Are you talking about the actual process or how do you get someone to pay for it? Because no one's going to pay for it the first time. I would do it on your own house. Like If you want to do a gloss wall, like do it on your own house. Or do it on a front door for a client. And don't even, like just tell them what you're going to do. Tell them you want to market it. Tell them you need extra time. But don't charge them more money. And you'll get a shot to do it. But you have to practice this stuff on projects where they're not paying for it. If you know what I mean. I, I never did this on a project. I never start. I did not start using FPE on projects that people were paying me to do FPE on. Like 
I just started using FPE on projects where no one was paying me any extra. And I, I got to learn it that way. Uh, that's my experience. There's probably other ways to do it, but that's been my experience. Sorry, I'm having issues with these questions. Yes, you can. So same person said, can you start with an, an air coat cap spray? I don't know what that is. Uh, a cap spray, like a turbine. You can start with a turbine unit. Absolutely. Start there. It's not going to be about your finish quality. Your, your spraying is probably not going to be your limiting factor when you first start. It's going to be the preparation of the surface. Um, but yes, just start using it. Like, honestly, if that's what, if you guys want to start doing this stuff, you just have to kind of start. Uh, talking about it and thinking about it, it's only so good. Um, yes, do it on your own house. Beautiful. I think drive the expensive car so they know your prices are high and you are successful. You're doing something right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I... I, I love Ron Francis. That guy's obviously unbelievable. But he came on here and he said a lot of business stuff that I personally don't ascribe to. And if you're to run a company. Now, Ron does amazing stuff. Uh, and But that guy's an artist. And he's I don't think he would claim to be a super businessman guy. That guy loves the art of it. And he was talking about driving a beat-up truck. And I do not agree with that. Uh, at all, honestly. And... and I don't want to get into it with him. I don't think he would even want to get into it with me. We run different companies and we do different things. But honestly, if you were trying to sell a high-end paint job and you were driving a beat-up pickup truck, I think that is, again, that's a face tattoo. Is it impossible to sell a nice paint job with a face tattoo? Absolutely not. Why would it be? It's just going to be harder. And the same thing with the beat-up truck outside. Like, I started with a Ford Taurus. Like, it is what it is. But is it going to, was that, all things being equal, a Ford Taurus outside is going to make it way harder to sell a front door gloss at the prices that we sell gloss doors at right now. Way harder, right? And that's all. The question is, is it harder? Not, can you do it? Like, we're trying to make this whole thing a business easier every day. So, I think image is very important. And how you portray yourself is very important. Let's see, I'm reading some comments. Good. Come to the school. Send me a DM. I'm excited. Anybody who's looking to try FPE on their own house, that's my kind of guy or gal. That That's that's that. The passion. Everyone who comes to ZK Finishing School has a passion for craftsmanship. They're trying to elevate themselves. And, you know, those are our people. Uh, exactly. If I was trying to get a bank loan, I'd dress like a banker. Um, somebody said, depends on the face tattoo. <laughs> you tell me what face tattoo will help me sell gloss doors for $5,000 a piece better, and I will get it. But I will fight you every step of the way. Paint School said, image is something a lot of painters want to ignore or act like doesn't like doesn't it like it shouldn't matter, but it does. Um, I would say 100% I agree with that. I used to, I, there's a lot of guys. I was one of them who like wanted, like I, 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 I have, I've had to overcome like wanting to be different for different sake. Like I was not, uh, I never felt like I fit in as a kid 
And, and so it was like, well, if I'm not going to fit in, then I'll just be different. And that'll be my thing. Right. But it, it, on some level, I tried really hard to fit in. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I did everything in my power. But there was some part of me that wanted to be different while trying to fit in, if you if you know what I mean. But I think that idea of like, oh, well, I could like I've sold a gloss store for five thousand dollars and I was driving a beat up truck. Like, yeah, sh- sure. Great. That's not that's not what we're talking about here. That's not a helpful way to look at it. It's it, did that truck help? You? We're talking about the truck right now. Did it help or hurt? All things being equal, that you drove that truck, say. Just like, I think that's how all these things can look back. Did it help or hurt that I showed up 30 minutes late? Did I still sell the job? Maybe you still sold the job, but I showed up 30 minutes late. Now, all things being equal, would we say that it's easier to sell jobs when you show up 30 minutes late or easier to sell jobs when you show up on time or 10 minutes early? You know, I think that's that's the kind of thing that, to John's point, like I did not used to think about. And I almost took pride in that the work was all that should matter. Should, right? Again, I've talked about this before and I've heard someone call me idealistic the other day. I, it was like, it kind of hurt me a little, but I probably shouldn't. I need to do some deep thought on idealism. But I'll tell you that I, I do like to say that idealism in business is for children. And that I don't get to be idealistic as a business owner. I need to listen to the market. And I don't need to be like, well, it shouldn't matter when I'm driving. I'm, I'm going to give them a great paint job. Well, it's like, yeah, that it shouldn't matter. But guess what? It does. <laughs> so I don't get to decide what that other person thinks like. It like, turns out it does. And guess what? I want to sell more of those paint jobs so I can make a living. So I got to throw my idealism away and adapt to the market and show up in a nicer vehicle or speak to them differently or, you know, whatever it may be, show up on time. But I need to listen to the market and stop acting like, well, yeah, I showed up 30 minutes late, but dude, I'm the best. I give the best paint job in my area. Like, dude, that doesn't matter. Clients, that's not how clients think. And I think that, yeah, that is an issue with our industry. A lot of times is a lot of guys go out on their own. Like I did, I went on my own cause I was not a good employee. Like I, I didn't want to follow rules. I didn't want to like, you know, I, I wanted the freedom to do whatever I wanted, man. Like, I don't want to like be the man. Well, now I'm like the man, like I employ people and it's like, I, I don't get to think like that. Right. It, that's, that is a selfish childlike mentality to have that it should be like this or, Oh, it's like, no, man, I need to listen. I got to listen to clients. I got to listen to the market. What is it saying? Right. I'm here to serve the market, to add value to people. Um, so that, that was a good point, John. And I, I really think that, um, yeah, send me a DM, Sam. Absolutely. Send me a DM. If, if someone wants to come, I know, um, we've been talking about maybe giving some scholarships, um, at some point, fine pays. It might be a ways away, but it's something we've been talking about at least. Um, Oh man. All right. So John got me. If you have a fine paints of Europe, if I put tattooed fine paints of Europe master certified on my forehead, I might sell more gloss doors for $5,000. That's a good point. Oh, under the left eye, little tears. Here's all the doors I had and just little FPE symbols all the way down for all of our doors. Um, 
I put paint clothes on just to go to the bid, even if I'm not painting that day. That's it's interesting, and and I would say that depends on your market, right? Um, I'm not gonna wear paint clothes to my bids. I'll tell you right now, that is not what my clients want to see. Um, but because I I'm a company that I, I don't do the work, right? So the, the like I talk with Jessica about this a lot. Like Jessica does the work. And so she's experienced a lot of clients who like her and will tell her they like her because she's doing the work. And they don't like, they prefer not to work with companies who the owner's not doing the work, right? Those people exist. And magically, those people find Jessica, right? On the flip side, my clients like the fact that we have teams of people and that we can do work faster. That's what we sell, right? I'm not there doing the work by myself. I have a team of people. So I can have four people on this project. So it's like, it just depends on who your target market is and what you're selling. What competitive advantages am I trying to sell? And for me, I'm not trying to sell to them. I'm going to be on the job site. So I'm sure not going to show up wearing paint clothes because that would just be weird. It's like, why are you wearing paint clothes? You don't paint. Um, I think it comes down to understanding your, like, that's why we talk about like understanding your competitive advantages. What is your company doing to serve the market better than everybody else? Then how are the ways that you can do that? And how can you communicate that clearly through social media is, is so important. I mean, yeah, if, if I had, if I was driving a Ford Taurus and if I had to sell an FP job, yes, I would try, probably do my best not to park near the job. Problem is most of my clients, it's tough to do like that. But yes, like honestly, I would definitely try to hide my vehicle if it was not something that just like if I had tattoos that were not something that pushed the image I was trying to create for my company, I would cover them up during the estimate. I don't have tattoos. It's not something I have to do. But if I'm trying to talk to clients who I think having tattoos would potentially make it harder, that's all it has to be is potentially make it harder. There's some clients, one in a hundred who might be a tattoo artist and love it. Yes. But odds are we can all safely say if we were to take a hundred of my ideal client and say, do you trust the guy that's covered in tattoos more than the guy versus the guy who isn't? In that test, every single time they're going the guy who isn't. And it's not right. It's not rational. It could be, you know, the same guy with fake tattoos. You pull them off. It's not rational, but it's the truth. So I'm trying to minimize anything that hurts my sales process and maximize everything that helps my sales process. Um, you know, I'm not perfect at it, but I don't claim to be. But that's my mentality. Um, yeah, keeping clean trucks, all that stuff. Um, yes, yeah, so that's with with the ZK Finishing School comes access to the private Facebook group where that's where everyone follows up and commun- continues to communicate and ask questions. And, um, that's the idea behind that. So yeah, after you come to the school, you're not just like out in the world and no one exists anymore. Everyone you came to school with will be in that Facebook group with you. I'll be in there and, uh, there'll be continued communication. John said, businesses need to be indifferent. It's only A's and B's and ones and twos. Exactly. Like as a business, I have to be indifferent. I can't be idealistic. Um, I we can have core values. Like 
But if all my core values go against all the core values for my entire market, well, guess what? Like, I probably have a problem. Um, but you, I think, I think you guys kind of know what I'm getting at now at this point. Um, I hope. Okay. Someone said, how do you find yourself a fill? Someone asked me that someone posted about that earlier. Uh, I'm going to stop the comments now. Can you, Hecker, can you put that in the questions? There's a little question thing at the bottom. Can you put that in the bottom and I can pull it up and have it on the screen? Um, all right. If you're a bum guy, though. So someone said, well, I'm a bum guy. All right. I don't know exactly what you mean by that. If you're serious. But. Yeah. And then and painter take turn said, I want to grow out my I want to grow my hair out and grow a beard, but the market won't like it. That's how I think. Now, there's always examples of people who have long hair and beards who are successful. I, I like that's not what we're talking about here. The, I think you're on to something. Though. Like if you were to honestly have some one of those like special companies that comes in and does market analysis and market testing of your ideal clients, if they were to really suss out how do your ideal clients feel about people with long hair and beards. I think that it would not be a benefit. It would be a hurdle. I'm not saying it ends the conversation and you'll never sell a job. But it would be a hurdle that your clients, that you'd have to get over because your clients would see you a little bit differently. If I had a big beard and, and, and long hair, my clients would perceive me. I'm the same exact human being. They would perceive me differently. So, yes, I'm trying to do everything I can for my clients to be able to perceive me the way that I really, truly am and our tr company truly is in the shortest amount of time, right? Because clients don't have a lot of time to get through to, to, I don't want my clients to have to see past my beard and long hair, right? Now, if I love, if, if I'm not a business owner or I don't care so much about it, right? It, it's, I'm not saying don't have a beard and long hair, but if you're trying to maximize effectiveness, Maybe think about whether a beard and long hair is helping you or hurting you. That's all. And and that's not just beard and long hair. Honestly, and I, I could do more of this. I think we all could. Like, look at everything we do in the day as a business owner and go, is this helping me or hurting me? And then how much is it hurting me or how much is it helping me? And do I want to change it? Right. Let's see. Yeah, yeah, the right opinion. If your ideal client wants to see the homeowner on site, that makes sense because you've been on site. So that makes a ton of sense to me. And so that's what you do because that's that's your where you built your business. But if one day you're like, I don't want to be in the field anymore, well, guess what? You're gonna have to find new a new market, and 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 the market you serve is here. Well, there's another market you don't even know exists because you don't serve it. Like we don't interact with those people. It's like when you want, it's whatever market you're after is where I, I think spending time to figure out how can I give them what they want is important. And a lot of times, because I think the flip side is a lot of times what we do is go, well, this is just the way I am. And so this, and then everyone you meet that hires you happens to like those things. And so then you're like, well, the market is this way. And it's like, well, 
yes, because that's what you've been doing and that's who's been paying you. But that doesn't mean the whole market is. It means your market is. And so being delivered on who is your ideal client and then reverse engineering my behavior to meet my ideal client, I think is the most effective way versus, you know, maybe you get lucky and your nature is just happens to be the most profitable market in the world. Your nature just magically fits it. That's awesome. But I think a lot of times we need to, at least I've had to look at my ideal client and my target market and reverse engineer my behavior to best fit it. Um, and that's a, an exercise that goes on for life, right? You're always continuing to try to do that. Um, um, hey, man, th- that's probably true, right? The paint terms that I think the bo- having a boss on site is crucial. Jobs get done better and faster. Um, I will say I disagree with that statement on some level and then on some levels I somewhat agree. Yes. If I was able to be on site, on one site, all day, every day, would the production for that team go up 100%? I'm the owner. Like, I eat, sleep, I am ZK. Like, I eat, sleep, and breathe this. This is, this is like, I love this. It, of course, it would be crazy if production didn't go up when the owner was around, right? And not because I'm cracking a whip, but... I have a passion for this and that's infectious and everyone's going to be performing at 110%. And that's what, like when you talk to guys who have grown their companies, like, yes, you have to go from production at X when you're there. It's just natural that production will drop a little bit because it just, that's just the nature of the owner mentality. It's just different, but you can't have a, a business. I can't serve the number of clients I serve now and have the opportunities for people to grow in the company. And, and there's, I'm trying to build a company. I'm not trying to work for myself. Uh, I still work for myself. Like, don't get me wrong. I can't sell my company tomorrow and make any kind of real money, but I'm trying to get there. So I can't be on site all the time. So instead I have to build in culture. Culture is the boss on site all the time, right? Culture is what's pushing people internally and hiring people who are pushed internally. Like our team they don't need me around to produce. Like, honestly, they don't. They're, they want to produce at a high level. Now, obvi- I honestly think when I show up, not like the minute, but like me being connected to the job site does help it get done. But that's just the nature of the passion I bring as an owner. That's like a little bit of rocket fuel to the team. So I think there's a difference between being on site and doing the work. And how often I get there, and it, it's a lot of, I don't know. Maximum efficiency is definitely owner being there, but you can't scale like that. It's not necessary. Um, the ro- I would say the wrong workers work three times faster when the boss is around. You are probably right. There, are, I've worked with guys, we've all worked with the guys who magically work way better when the boss is around. They change. They're completely different human beings. You're like, well, who are you? This is not the guy that I was just hanging out with a minute ago working because the boss is here now and you're a completely different person. When I show up on the job site, my people don't change who they are, right? I've hired great people who want to get the work done intrinsically to feel good, to keep the company rolling. And it's not about, well, the boss is here. I better get back to work. I've had those guys. I will, we don't have those people in the company anymore. So I think there's a big piece of it is 
who are the people doing the work? Do you ever, have you ever not been taken seriously due to your young look? Uh, yeah, definitely. When, especially when I first started, like I definitely, I definitely experienced that. And that's again, like I would dress. So I remember the first time I ever went to the, the casino, Foxwoods, I didn't have a fake ID. I was like 19 years old and I wanted to go play poker so bad. It was right in the poker boom. I was, I'm a big, I was a big poker player. And I dressed up, I'd gone to Arizona State, so I had all these like fancy club clothes. And I dressed, I dressed looking like I was going to go to the club in Vegas to go to Foxwoods because I didn't have a fake ID and I didn't want to get carded. And I remember there's this arch that you'd have to walk underneath that would go from like the 21 plus gambling area and like the place where everybody was at, like where you could just walk through the casino. And when you walk through that archway, right? Dressed, look at like the nice dress shoes, nice dress jeans, nice shirt, like all put together, right? Magically, I was able to walk through and not look uh, and not get carded. And I think that how I, I was always very conscious of how I presented myself and how people will perceive you in different ways based on how you present. And I think that so when I was younger, I would I would that was part of it. I always had a baby face and I would I was the shortest kid in school for like my whole life. To like I grew like seven inches in one summer, but I was like the shortest kid, the skinniest kid forever. And so I always had that, like I understood like the way I present myself, I will be perceived differently. So I think that's goes, it goes back to like being seen as young. It was just one more of the reasons where I, I had, I had a business card way before I had any business having a business card. Um, I had yard signs way before I had any business having yard signs, but I was just trying to per, like portray the image of an adult with a real company. Um, if that helps. Um, I looked really young when I started selling jobs uh, and it definitely something I had to overcome, but I learned and read a lot. So it sounded like an expert and that's it. So it's something you overcome. We all have things we have to overcome, right? Everyone has, Strengths and weaknesses. And so it's like, how do you figure out how to minimize the hurdles and maximize your strengths? And if you look young, there's ways that you can look older. And there's ways that you can, if you're not going to look older, you're going to be super competent. And you can build up a bunch of other stuff because you can't, maybe you can't control that. The question box, did you find it yet, Hecra? It's the little question marks in the bottom. <laughs> uh, talking about face tattoos. Yes. So Cade painting and drywall said my arms are covered in tattoos. Once I talk to them, they're okay. But I guarantee that first impression is iffy. Got to roll with it now. And I talked, I've had the same conversation with Phil. Yeah. Cause guess what? Like the tattoos having tattoos this is a newsflash for everybody. Having tattoos does not make you any type of person, right? You could put ink on you and that is not, when you put ink on you, you don't magically change who you are on the inside, right? But people have a perception of what tattooed people are like because of a bunch of historic crap that has nothing to do with, with Cade painting and drywall and has nothing to do with Phil as people, but... 
we don't have time to sit and interview every human being we walk up to for five hours to find out their deep life story. We have to look at somebody, size them up quickly, and then move on. So, yes, having tattoos is a hurdle that Kate has to jump over because I think you're right. People are going to look at you at first glance and go, and then when you start to talk, they're going to be like, oh, wow, like that's a, that's a nice guy. Wow, I'm surprised he's nice, right? Probably the first thing I would think, you meet a tattooed up dude, first, and he talks and he's a nice guy. I think the first thing you're like, wow, he's a nice guy. I didn't see that coming, right? And there's probably a lot of things like that. So it is, it's something you overcome. And so you can do little things to minimize it. Maybe you wear a long sleeve shirt. Maybe you find uh, some joke about it quickly to, to, I don't really know what you do. Or you just deal with it because something's just going to deal with it. Um, but if we were the, the point to my whole thing is like in, if all things were being equal and we were designing the perfect person to go sell work, they wouldn't have tattoos and that's all. It doesn't mean that having tattoos is bad. It just means it's a thing to overcome. So, and tattoos is a bad example because tattoos, you really can't change, but like the way you are dressed, that's like the easiest tomorrow. You can go get new clothes, put new clothes on and look completely different. You can get a new pair of glasses, like these glasses were a couple hundred bucks. Like you can get a pair of glasses. You can get a new haircut. Like there's a lot of things you can do. You can, more money, but you can get a different vehicle. You can have it lettered up beautifully. You can have a nice website. You can have good social media. You know, there's a lot of things you can do for your image that are easy to change. Some things aren't as much, but they all matter on some level. Um... Man, I've been talking so much that the comments have all gone. I have a lot to read through. Yeah, I mean, the 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 number of people who have tattoos that are amazing human beings. I mean, the list goes on and on. But that, and, and but that's not the point. And I, I don't need to go over it again. But someone else is pointing out another guy. Like I know lots of people who have tattoos and they're awesome. But the first time I met them, I definitely saw them differently than I see them today, you know? Someone said, uh, Beach God said, is my mullet going to get me kicked out of class? No, uh, you're not trying to sell me anything. So you're in, man. I don't care what you look like. Anyone who knows me knows, like, I, dude, that's, I, I don't, I try very hard not to judge people by the, the cover. Right, age, race, sexual identity, creed, religion, lack of religion, all that stuff. Right, it doesn't matter. Who are you? Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. How I perceive people, I'm talking about how is a client going to perceive us and our company? Very different things. Um, the right painter. I'm gonna. I'm going to agree and disagree with your statement of product knowledge is the key to sales. Uh, I agree for one quarter of the market. Pretty much. I think if you break down, I don't know, they're one of the four type buyer types. There's, there's generally accepted to be at least a simple breakdown as there's these four buyer types and there is a buyer type called the analytic or called a number of different things. The, the person who wants to take in all the data Analyze the data, sleep on it, and make a decision, right? They are very data-driven people. Product knowledge 
is the secret weapon against for the analytical buyer, right? Those were all my like when I look back, like most of my client, most of them were the analytical buyer because all I came in with was product knowledge in every sales meeting. But as I've learned and read more about sales and talked to sales experts and read books, there are different types of buyer types. And some people don't want to know about the product stuff. They want to know about you and they want to connect with you as on a human level. And there's, there's just a number of, and some people don't want to talk about the paint job. They want to talk about other stuff. And there's a number of different buyer types. And so learn like, and I'm still trying to hone that muscle. I still am obviously way better with the, analytical buyers those are that's where i'm like those are my sweet spot i have to really really work to sell better to non-analytical buyers because i do want to talk about the product stuff more some people want to talk about the aesthetics more some people want to talk about the type of people who will be in their house way more and what the experience will be like they don't care about the paint stuff It, it, it is very interesting so i i would agree that they're the key to sales for the analytical buyers product knowledge but the key to sales, I think, is being able to adapt your sales process to the different types of buyers. That is very difficult. And the top sales guys, they're guys who, like, they can size a guy up. So I, there's a guy coming to actually our social media. Let's say it again. I said I wouldn't. Our social media weekend. I was on a podcast with him. His name is Alan Langer. He has an amazing book. I do recommend you guys read it. I'm almost done with it now, and it is phenomenal. It's called Seven Ways. It's the hackiest name, but it's called Seven Ways to Sell Without Selling. And that book, this guy sold uh, Anderson Windows, right? Which is similar to what we sell right? in a way. You know, it's, it's a product you're selling in someone's house. They're paying for it before they get it, um, blah, 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 blah. And this guy has studied the sales process so deeply. And he was a top, top salesman to the point where he stopped being a salesman, started being a consultant to them, then wrote a book. Now he coaches people. Very knowledgeable guy on sales. And what this guy was talking about is the way to the best salespeople will quickly size up the type of buyer, what needs, like they will give the very differing sales pitches to differing people. Um, and I think that is incredibly hard to do, but also very, very beneficial uh, and very effective. I went on a rant again and lost a bunch of comments. Um, sorry, and I'm, I say it all the time, but I'm such a slow reader. Oh yeah, I'm I'm definitely a big fake it till you make it guy. Oh, that's a cool clarification, Phil. I. Yes, I have a bunch of long sleeve shirts at the shop for the guys. Uh, Phil's mostly the one who wears them, and Phil does request them. I'm not telling Phil, because again, I'm not going to tell Phil cover up who you are. If you want to show your tattoos, show your tattoos. If if I have a gay employee, I'm not going to be like, hey, could you pretend to be straight on the job site today? You know, and same with everything. It's like I want the people on my team to be who they are. I tell them all, same with their social media, like be who you are. So I'm glad that you clarified that in case anyone thought I was like making you wear long sleeves to cover up your tattoos. Um, sorry, I'm reading all these questions. 
Does anybody know Theo Vaughn? Theo Vaughn has a killer mullet. Um, I, I love Theo Vaughn and his mullet. Somebody wants a top three books. The top three books, I mean, that's hard. I'll just, I should just put together my like favorite books, but I think How to Win Friends and Influence People is a book that's been uh, very beneficial to my life. Understanding Michael Porter has been an absolute game changer. Um, I'm really enjoying Seven Ways to Sell While Not Selling, and I'll probably need to read it a couple more times because that it, there's a lot to that sales thing, of, and it's a lot of like getting out of your own, like, don't I, I tend to, you know, we tend to look, see the, the world as a bunch of us. Like, I just, I generally, if I'm not thinking, I will assume people think like me in a situation. And I think that can be very harmful in a relationship. It can be harmful in a lot of ways to like put yourself like the way I want to be talked to when I'm like not feeling well or I'm bummed out is not the same way that my wife wants to be talked to when I'm not feeling well. So like that idea of changing how you handle people based off of the signs that they're putting out and being able to be good at that is something I'm still working on. So I think um, thinking fast and slow is probably, it's like probably one of my, it's probably my favorite book, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a dense one and it's led to a lot of other books that have come that have sort of condensed it a little bit. But just that idea that we have the, the, two parts of our brain one that is reacting like to just superficial stuff real fast and making millions of decisions that we don't have to think about and then the the other the slow side that is the analytical thinker and the ways that those two will interact and cause us problems if when we're not getting what we want um sorry Oh yeah. Okay. I, I see. Yeah. The right panel said product being our trade, not specifics on materials. That makes sense. I just know a lot of times people like to, I I'm guilty of it. I think that's why I read it that way. I used to want to talk about the, the paint product, like the, the nerded out paint stuff and not go, well, what kind of client is this? Sometimes they don't even want to talk about paint very much. They want to talk about the feeling of the room after or whatever. And like, but I just want to keep going back to, let me tell you about our process and let me tell you about this. Let me, and everyone, every single sales book you'll ever read and every course you ever take will tell you to like, listen better, shut up and listen. Like if you're talking too much, nothing's happening. I have struggled for so long to, I was like probably the worst. I was probably the caricature of what not to do in the sales process where I would talk so much. I love to talk. I've been talking for like, I don't know, an hour and a half now. I'm a talker. But in the sales process, it's shutting up and truly listening is what I continuing to try to flex that muscle in all of life, but in the sales process particularly. Catch Me If You Can is a great movie. Uh, someone said, how do you get more information to join ZK uh, Painting School? Um you can send me an email at zkfinishingschool at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram, send me a DM. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. You'll get a hold of my assistant at that email address. Um, but zkfinishingschool on Instagram and I promise we're going to be posting more soon. Um, uh, 
all these are like um yeah but i i think the sales process like sales is a i mean you could get a phd in sales like it is a thing that you could spend a lifetime studying and the best guys are i'll tell you the best guys right now i guarantee you they're not selling paint jobs they're not selling anything remotely close to paint jobs. The best salespeople are selling things that cost millions of dollars, right? Because the commissions are higher, the stakes are higher. You know, the guys who sell very high, like, very expensive things, like they figured out, like, I, honestly, at some point, I need to find a, like a yacht salesman and get him on the podcast or her. Um, if you're selling yachts, like you better be really freaking good. Because these are very large purchases and the stakes are high. Plus, you're gonna if you're looking to hire a yacht salesman, uh, I would imagine you get your pick of the best people, right? What's the commission on a yacht when you sell a $20 million boat? Like, I can't imagine, but it's probably a lot. So I like to look at other industries to find, like, if I was going to be the best, just the best salesperson in the world, what industry would be able to pay me the, the most money? Right. And it's probably some it's an industry where they're selling very, very expensive things. Right. With high margins. Um, so I, I would be interested to if anybody knows a yacht salesman, send them my way. I, I might just go pretend to buy a yacht just so I can, like, meet, make contact with a yacht salesman and find out, like, what goes into that process. Um, all right. So we're back to, uh, I guess, a few more questions. Um, JM Painting and Drywall. Early in your career, how did you get connected to architects and builders? Uh, I'll tell you, early in my career, I think we could all, anyone who wants to get business can relate to this. Early in my career, I got connected to the worst builders in the world. Like, the scumbags. I've told the story before, but a builder met, I, I got connected with a builder in a Home Depot, and he was working at Home Depot. I swear, you can't make that up. He was working at Home Depot. He had a great story as to why at, during the recession, he took the job for benefits and he was been building houses the whole time and he, he was working part-time there now because he really liked the people or whatever the freak he said. I was just like, you have a house and you might pay me to paint it? Like, oh my gosh. Like, I was so green and he saw that. I mean, I was in a Home Depot at like nine o'clock at night on a Friday night or Saturday night. Like, he knew that I was, I didn't have my shit together and he took advantage of me. So early in your career, very rarely are you going to get connected to anyone that is any good. If, especially if they come to you or they're like, it's easy. Generally. Now I've heard some stories of some people who I get really, but like generally people are going to see you early in your career and eat you alive. So you got to be careful about the with the builders early in your career. Uh, well, I, what I will say is what I, how I found the good builders and the good architects and the good designers has all been through. So ninety nine percent of it has been through social media. Um, now now I've completely broken my rule. I'm just gonna like beat this. I'm just gonna double down on this. I've almost said be like a dead horse fourteen times this episode. It's like a purple tick now. But at our social media marketing weekend. That's where we're going to go deep into a case study of how I started from 
where I started, my wife started my account and I hated social media. And I posted, if you go look at my first couple pictures, like one of them is definitely seriously crooked. There's no caption. Like it was bad. And, but through what I was been able to do with social media, I was able to reach out to high quality builders and high quality designers and architects and get taken seriously. Right. Cause that's, that's the, the, the good ones. They, you want to be taken seriously by these people. And if you, I don't care, maybe now if you're the best sales guy in the world, this is probably not true. But if you call up the the top dog builders in your area and tell them like, hey man, like I tried this stuff. Like, hey man, I'm like the greatest painter. I freaking love painting. I will paint so good for you. You can't imagine blah, 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 blah. Whatever you say, I don't care what you say. Like, I don't know that there's anything you can say. I don't think there is. If you were to call up a builder or an architect or designer, a good one, the the top guys, they're not looking to bring new people on just to bring them on. Like you better have come. They have a tight network. That's what makes them so good. So I would say building out your social media to clearly define and demonstrate who you are, what makes you special and what you do. When your social media is that, it's not anything else now. Now, your, your, your feed. If you want to post all the fun stuff on stories, great. Um, but, yeah, I, people ask me how I found Phil. Phil found me because of this exact thing. This is why I'm teaching a class on it. I promise. It's a ton of value. I'm so sad that people are jumping at the gloss stuff and no one's jumping at the social media stuff. Because, to me, the social media stuff is... So I have so much more value to add there because it's brought in so much revenue for my company. It's sick. It's absolutely sick. The amount of work this year will do well over. We did a half a million, a little over half a million last year in revenue from Instagram. And we'll do more this year for sure. And now it's pretty much all of our work is coming from Instagram. And I, I got a call. And now I'm starting to get calls from I'm much more often calls from clients directly through Instagram, but that's not really what we're talking about. How do you get in with the architects and designers? Well, oh no, my boy Caesar's coming, but just, I, I did not have, I got an outpouring of people who wanted to come learn how to use fine paints of Europe in a way that we just booked up stuff so fast from one story. And I get that. Cause that's how I would have been. And I would have been looking at a social media marketing weekend and I've been like, dude, that's not gonna do anything for me. And I just, I know it's so the opposite. Like the lead domino is selling the work more than for most of us it is executing the work even. But they have to kind of go together. And if you have one without the other, that's why um, Mikey Lonsdale from Wet Paint is coming to the social media one. I was talking to him today and he's like, he's applying paint uh, at the high level. Oh, and Caesar, we changed it to 1500. I want to get all six people in. I want to book them up early. I want to be waiting. So we're going to, and my overhead's lower and it's the first time. So it's 1500 Caesar and it's 1500 for everyone else that just so you know, I did make a post about 2000, but, um, but when, so when your social media is crisp, right? It very clearly demonstrates who you are, what makes you special, why you, what do you do? And I can see that in about 10 seconds, very quickly. I don't have to scroll through a bunch of pictures of your dog and your kids and whatever. Like I, I don't personally think that that helps sell my ideal client. Now, maybe your ideal client different, but my ideal client, 
I know you were in at 2000 but you just got a $500 discount. Because uh, that's what everybody's getting. And I could never look at my boy Caesar and charge him more money than anybody else. Because he's our first two-time um, student, if you will. Super excited. Um, the next paint class is December. The first weekend of December. The social media class is October 17th and 18th. Um, send me a email. ZKFinishingSchool at gmail.com. But... Yes, back to, I'm glad Paint Terminator said I'm definitely cleaning up my account. If the name of your, if you own a company and the name of your company is not the Paint Terminator and you're trying to get work through your social media, I would even start there. But I, that's neither here nor there. That's what we get, go deep into at the class. But again, if you're trying to get in with architects and designers, it is, and not just them, but that's what the question is. Yes, thank you, Carney. Carney is the one who will respond right away. And then when I'm in the office on Tuesday, we will give you a call and we'll go through all the details of what it looks like and what we're going to do. But I was able to, I sent my first, I probably sent, I probably sent, I don't know, at least three or 400 DMs, unsolicited DMs to designers, builders, and architects. I would say, if you talk about number of them, it's probably 500. I probably sent 500 DMs to approximately 300 entities or, or, or companies, right? The idea being, I built out... Oh, I, I was not talking about this in a minute. Gary Vee has been so influential in my life, and I'm speaking at the Pro Painter Network conference right before Gary Vee, which is so insane. But I take, I've taken a lot of Gary Vee's... Um, like, Gary Vee influenced me heavily into trying a bunch of stuff. Because like he'll say, you have to actually do it. Gary Vee helped me to change, to try a lot of stuff. So I was sending out these DMs. And, but at first, I had curated a very clear feed. My bio was very... I've rewritten my bio at least 30 times. And I'll probably do it 10 more times. And I'll, this week, I might think of something. I haven't looked at it in a while, but... My bio was rewritten many times. And if you see, it's very deliberate. It All the sentences are longest to shortest, right? I just like that. Like it, it goes down like this. It's not like, mm, 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 right? It just looks nice. And I put little paint palettes and I sacrificed all that to have some like color there. And I wrote passion for craftsmanship there. Yes, Gary Vee is the final speaker on the third day, the day that I'm speaking as well, which is like, I can't believe it. It's so, it's so cool because Gary Vee literally made, like I can say, attributed to a lot of my success and through social media was taking his principles and practicing them and trying them out. And he, again, he changed my paradigm. A lot of the stuff he says is crazy, but he changed the, the, the mindset that I had on how, why social media worked, what worked in social media. And that's what I would say is like, so you get your your bio really good. Then you get your feed really good. And then you start sending messages to architects and designers that are really good messages, right? That, that say what they want to hear, right? Don't tell them how good you are. Tell them what you can do for them. The, I sent out a lot of those. And then I would, if I didn't get a response after a while, I would take it down and I would send another one. And I sent a lot of those and that's kind of what got the ball rolling. And then I got a, a project. I got to sit down with the builder and then I got a project with the builder. And then that builder posted about it. And I got another designer over here and just like it just snowball effect. The next thing you know, 
my whole ecosystem of projects is coming from this ecosystem of people who are on social media, specifically Instagram. Yeah, I, I think consist like being the real deal, documenting that you're the real deal, and then reaching out with empathetic po like messaging that is not like wanty, like I want, want, want. It's like Gary Vee always says, give, give, give. Like if you reach out with like win, win or or no lose situ sit like scenarios, like hey, you know, I'd love to buy you coffee and whatever, or jump on a Zoom meeting or check out our feed we do some stuff that i think would really help out the design aesthetic that you go for i have this product or process that might really whatever it is but you have to figure out this is why there's so much to go through that's why we have a whole weekend of it of like what makes you special and then how do we articulate that to people but i connected to architects and designers and still do every day i i i i had a, a, a conversation if you will in the comments of, a, of an amazing architect today. It'll, it's not going to go. It probably will go nowhere. Like I was just like asking a question about exterior stain. And then I was recommending sort of a, a very like, like this is just something that we try to do. And they were like, um, I think by the end, they were just like, thank you or something. But like I'm on their radar now. And they went and looked at our, I'm sure they looked at my feet. Because no one writes. Have you ever had a comment written on your feed that you didn't go look at the person who wrote the comment? If it was a sentence. They ever didn't go look at the person to see who they were all about, right? And if that person had a very clear, very well thought out feed, did you not follow them back if that's something that you were into? So, you know, I, I still will see something and like reach out to a designer or a builder. And I would say uh, over nine times out of 10, I don't get a response, right? But I don't take that personally. Dude, I'm busy as hell. Guys, if you guys have sent me a message and I didn't get back to you, I can assure you, it is not personal, but I get a lot of DMs, a lot, and they, I got a lot of stuff going on, and sometimes, like, I'll look at it and not respond, and then it, it's, it's 20 DMs deep, and I'll never see it again, until someone will say something else later, and then I'll see the old one, I'll be like, crap, and I'll answer both questions or something, so I don't ever take it personally if somebody doesn't respond back to my DM, but guess what? I know I'm the real deal. And if they were to have our company work for them, it would benefit them greatly, right? I think that's the mentality we all need to have as, as owners and in sales and marketing is like, I'm doing you a favor by letting you know I exist because I, our company is really good and you will be happy that you've gotten to know us and use us, right? That's the mentality I have, whether it's true or not, whatever, I believe it. And so when I reach out with a DM, I'm just like helping. I'm trying to help them. I'm trying to be like, and I'm, I don't do it with any kind of cockiness. Don't get me wrong, guys. I just mean the mentality of like, if they don't take me serious, if they don't respond, like they probably have a million things going on. That's fine. But guess what? Next time I see them post something, I'm going to send them another DM and I'm going to unsend that other one and resend it. And I'm not going to take it personally if they don't get back to me for a year. I had a designer a year, nothing. We just did a project with them. So it's consistently showing up and adding value over and over again. And to me, don't take anything personal in business. That's always like the first thing to go with. Um, let's see. When you estimate these jobs, like that picture we were looking at, I think, 
Do you go with time estimate or linear foot or square foot? Um, Caesar said, to conquer the world, you have to believe in yourself. I 100% agree. The more work I've done on myself through therapy and the 12-step program and whatever it is, the more like honestly, honest work I did on myself, like deep down emotions and mental shit stuff, not like working out in the gym. Like I went to the gym for my emotions, which is therapy, right? The more I I got com- like myself comfortable with and confident in myself, the better I'm able to go attack the world. The more I can look that client in the eye, the more I can stand up for what's right and blah, 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 blah. So I think there's a lot to be said with believing in yourself to conquer the world. But to this question of do, how do you estimate? I'll tell you. The first, like estimating from linear footage and square footage, that's all awesome. And the reason you would do that is because it's faster. And that's the only, I, I, I mean, tell me another reason why. But to me, the only reason why you would estimate based off of square footages is because it's faster to do, right? It depends. Now, I mean, there's lots of things here. I, I don't know. But generally, if we're talking about a, a new construction project, if you're talking about estimating off of square footage of the floor plan, the only reason you're doing that is because it's much faster than going piece by piece and adding it all up, right? So the first time you do it, the first few times you put together a proposal, don't do it by square footage. Take the time. Figure out how long it takes you to do things. So the like... Honestly, we most of our stuff is by mandates. Like, if I don't know it really well, I'm estimating by mandates. How many, how much work can one do, man do, one person do, in an eight-hour day? Right now, take your labor rate, whatever that is. Ours is seventy-five dollars an hour, is what we're estimating at right now. Trying to be at least. Uh, lots of things affect that, but we're trying to be $75 an hour to cover overhead and, and all this stuff and try to be a profitable company one of these days. Um, and then we'll multiply times eight and that's our price per mandate. And then I look at say a bedroom and go, all right, how many mandates will it take to paint this room? Right. And I might break that up into smaller things, whatever it is. Right. And that might get me, okay, so this living, this, this bedroom ends up at three and a half man days and we'll say it's 500 a man day. That's not 75 an hour, but, um, $500 a man day times three and a half, right? That's 15, 1750. Now I'm going to go, well, how much material do I have? I'm going to add that up. Right. And we'll say it's 250. So that bedroom is $2,000 to paint. That's, that's how I would get to that price. Right. That's very that's a very accurate way to do it, piece by piece, right? Okay, it's gonna take me four hours to do this, three hours to do this, right? Now you have two thousand to paint a let's for fun, let's say a ten by ten room, right? So now I look at a ten by ten room, that's a hundred square feet, cost me I my estimate is two thousand dollars an hour. Two thousand dollars. So that is what, twenty dollars a square foot, if my math is correct. So if I do that five times and I land where this type of bedroom ends up being $20 a square foot every time I do that out. Now, I might, I'm might i going to be much more comfortable 
just looking, just walking into that room and going, how many square feet is this room? Oh, it's, it's 20 square feet. It's, it's 100 square feet. Oh, then it's $2,000 to paint this room. I don't have to do all that other stuff because I've done it enough to know my numbers. So I think you get to back into uh, to bidding by square footage. So now I might go, all right, well, I have, this is a very modern house, right? So a new construction, right? You might look at a very modern home, right? I just bid one. And it's like, I forget, it's like eight or 9,000 square feet. It's very modern. It doesn't have baseboard. It doesn't have trim. Well, no, let's take a different one I just did. Same thing though. It has no trim, no casings. The doors are all being pre-finished by the door manufacturer. We are only painting walls, ceilings, and a baseboard, right? All right, so now that same 100 square foot room, I'm not gonna charge $20 a square foot now because there's no trim, right? In this, in this thing. So, so I, you can start to play with your square footage as a coefficient, but I don't think you want to just start bidding off of coefficient, the coefficient times the square footage until you've gotten the long way of doing like, how long does it take me to do X? All right. I can paint this new construction in for $15,000 and it is 1500 square feet. So I am Ten dollars a square foot. I'm, my my brain is fried. Maybe I'm a hundred dollars a square foot in that equation, but no, I'm ten dollars a square foot, right? All right, so that type of house ends up being a fifteen dollars a square foot hot type of house, right? So, and then and that's what I'll do, and that's how the guys I know who are bidding the big high end new constructions. That's what they're doing. They are looking at the total square footage of space. And they're deciding based off of the details in that space, what the coefficient will be. And a lot of these guys can be very accurate with that because, all right, well, we're painting all the windows. All right, well, you better add like $5 a square foot to this project to cover the cost of painting all the actual window sashes or whatever it may be. So I think it's great to to the question, it's great to be able to estimate by square footage or linear footage of something. But those are fast ways, You have those are coefficients you're multiplying times the square footage to get a price. Those coefficients in a perfect world should come from doing the work, tracking the hours, and then when you do those first estimates, not just going, well, I'm gonna bid at $5 a square foot. No, go like, I'm gonna do this room with this process it's going to take this long to do this, this long to do this, this long to do this times my hourly rate plus my material that gets me a price. Do that a couple of times, figure out what your coefficients are. Now you can go estimate jobs like this because you already have your coefficients dialed in. That's, that's kind of how I do it. Like I know my coefficients for gloss work, right? You know, we can do a very fast, fast gloss room for, and it depends on the size, right? If it's a tiny, tiny room, the coefficient price is going to go way up, right? Because there's no efficiencies of scale. If I'm doing 10 square feet of gloss, dude, 10 square feet of gloss, I mean, that might be $200 a square foot, right? Because it's, it's 10 square feet and we have to wait for dry times and blah, 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 right? Now, if you give me 1,000 square feet of gloss, my coefficient might be $30 a square foot if it's white and everything's perfect. It might be 60, it might be 40, it might be whatever that is based off of a bunch of other parameters. We're doing a gloss job in one Dalton, which is a, a big high rise that's the 
like the most expensive place to live in Boston right now. Crazy building. Right, the the square footage pricing to paint that gloss ceiling in in a penthouse at one Dalton is twice the square footage pricing to paint that a white gloss ceiling on the east side of Providence, right? Because there's a bunch of things that go into the cost being higher, right? We're only going to produce maybe five hours of actual work a day per per person, right? Because of sitting waiting for elevators for hours. I mean, there's going to be Many, many hours of sitting around waiting for elevators on this project. I still have to pay the pe- my guys for their time. Um, oh, I lost you. I'm sorry. Yes. So the paint school said the best way is always going to be a one-off estimate. But that's not scalable. So the, the answer is if you're small and you're just starting, go break the job down exactly how are you going to do the job. All right, day one, I'm going to come in. I'm going to set up my, like, I'm going to mask everything off. I'm going to sand the trim, and I'm going to prime the trim. Or, or just like, not even day one. Okay, what are you going to do? I'm going to, ma- I'm going to mask everything off. How long is it going to take you to mask off this room? Be honest. Don't, don't think, not when you just had four Red Bulls and you had a 10-hour night sleep the night before. And you have every tool ready to go. Don't estimate like that. Estimate like it's an average day. How long is it? And, and the client's going to stop and talk to you for a minute. And the dog might run through and, and like, how long is it going to take you to mask that room off? All right. An hour and 15 minutes. How long is it going to take you to sand the trim? 15 minutes. Like go every single step of that process. Write it out. Here's how I'm going to paint the room. It's going to be this 37 step process from start to finish. Now put a time to every single one of those. Add up the time. Times that times your hourly rate, add your materials, you have a cost. That is the most accurate way that you can ever estimate a project. If you've done that long enough, you'll start to get square footage pricing based off of that. And you can now shortcut that long drawn out process and be faster. And that's scalable. And you can have estimators do that stuff. But in the beginning, you just need to figure out how how long are you going to be here and how much is your time worth? And how much is the material worth? Well, guess what? That's what the pro- the client should be paying. There's so many variables, right? Yes, this is and that's how you calculate production rates. So I I hope that helped. Um, all right. John asked the question, how do you reset your mind? Do you do it daily, weekly, monthly? Um, I 100% do it daily. Um, I do what could be called praying uh, to a higher power, if you will. That's I was very uncomfortable with that. I'm not a religious person. I was very uncomfortable with calling it praying for a long time. Now I love it because it means what it just means what it means. It means trying to get us out of my brain and I'll say the serenity prayer or whatever. It, it's 12 stuff. stuff. But like, it doesn't matter. It's all, it's universal for anybody. Like I try to get outside of my, my tunnel vision of seeing the world to like, see it from a bigger picture as, as best I can. Right. It's not easy. And a lot of times stuff will be like viscerally like affecting me. Right. I had some issues this week on a project that were viscerally affecting me. 
and so I can pray and it makes it a little bit better, but you know, sometimes I have to move or I have to like, but I'm trying to, there's so much going on. I would say it's definitely daily trying to like many times a day trying to get back to like, John, it's funny cause you don't have this problem. John's like the most steady Eddie dude I know. So this is hilarious. The work I have to do to be as just steady as John is on a daily basis, like I'll never be anywhere near him, but I have a disease and I have a brain that needs to like, I think moderation is, is the most effective way to live life, but my brain does not work in that world. I have to work very hard to stay in moderation, right? And to stay like centered and Zen and whatever you want to call it. Right. So but I, and I, so I do, I have things I can do while I'm driving to like, all right, how am I going to like get out of this headspace? I can't do anything about this right now. So I know my brain's going nuts about this, but I cannot do anything right now. So how do I get out of the mindset of worrying about this? And, you know, it's, there are a number, I mean, there's thousands of books have been written on this type, this topic. There are a lot of things, but if you don't have some sort of a spiritual practice, I think you're missing out. No, I can't believe I'm saying this because I was so against all this for so long. But I think I believe that spirituality is like water and shelter and food. Like it is to our overall well-being as a human being, having some sort of spiritual practice, I think is very important. It doesn't have to be a religious thing. Just something that gets me outside of me for a, a few minutes to not feel like everything in the world is my fault and I'm responsible for everything and there's not a power greater than myself. When you start to work on that and, and have a power greater than yourself, it could be yoga, it could be that tree over there, whatever it is, something greater than me, then magically this weight was lifted from me. So I think doing something to have a mental way to step back and focus on what can I get done? What can I do? And then let go of the rest. That's not an easy thing to do. Uh, especially not, it's easy to talk about right now. Like that's, it's a joke. But when, when a client is pissed off of you and is what something happens or, you know, whatever, some catastrophic thing, you know, my wife dies tomorrow, right? This is an extreme, like hopefully she doesn't die tomorrow, but like if she does, right, how do I, handle that best. Well, I better have some like, I better have some practice in dealing with stresses and not just like white knuckling it. Like, and then that stuff comes out in other horrible ways in our life. Right. Um, I love that idea of carving in that groove and it becomes more natural. Yes. It, it's, it's practice and I'm working on it. It's a, it's a daily thing I work on. Golf has been huge for it. I, I joined a country club I would never have joined a country club if I didn't own a business that my ideal clients go to country clubs. Honestly, I never thought I'd be in a country club or that I could afford one. I still probably, it's neither here nor there if I can afford it. But it's not something I would have chose to spend my money on probably at this point in my life had I not had the business and had ideal clients who golf at a country club, right? That's a piece that I think makes it a little different. I would have continued to golf, but I would not have joined a country club. I love my country club. I love being a member there. I love all the things that come with it. It's all fancy and blah, 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 blah. It feels awesome. But it's a place I can go now and completely, like, I don't look at my phone. And 
I can have a couple hours where after like the stresses of what goes on inside my head, like I can have a couple hours to be out on a beautiful golf course with awesome people and just play golf. So for me, that's like, that's been one of those things. And and I'm certain work will come from it eventually. And that'll be awesome. But that'll be like insane gravy that at this point now, as I'm seeing, that will help pay for it. But having golf in general, whether it's a country club or not, like having that golf thing for me, I was playing in a league not at a country club for, for the last two years, a nine hole league. I'm not very good at golf, but it was a thing where every Wednesday during golf season, during this league, I would go play golf at like three o'clock. Right. So I knew at three o'clock, my brain was going to shut off and I was going to go play golf with these guys. And I needed that. Like I need that stuff. And I'm, I, cause I'm still I'm still scratching the surface, uh, yeah, still on lockdown, um, of that, like, building that groove that John is talking about. Like, I'm trying to build that groove to be in that channel, to have it be more and more natural, to be calm and objective and not get super excited about stuff, right? So, it's definitely hard work, um, you know. I, uh, I have a very, I have a natural tendency to go zero to 60 very fast. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes it's not, or it needs to be like understood and controlled better when I'm going to zero to 60 and what I'm going to zero to 60 on. And, uh, so I'm, I'm definitely always trying to work on, excuse me, like even talking about this topic and thinking about praying to my higher power and golf and all those things, like. I can tell you right now, my blood pressure is lower. Like my heart rate is lower. And that's like that groove that you're talking about, John. Like having some sort of intentional practice to get outside of the stresses of life every day and take care of like my biology, which is why I do believe that spirituality is a thing that takes care of our biology. I don't think it's a choice for me. It's not a choice. Like if I'm don't, like practice spirituality and pray to a higher power and like, and don't, if I don't believe there's a power greater than myself, my biology will suffer. I, that's what I believe. And I, people go to church for this. They, they go to yoga yoga studios for this. But I think as a, as a human being, I need water, food, shelter, and spirituality. Um, mind, body, spirit. Yes. And I was very against that for a very long time. I'm a very analytical person. Uh, I'm a science guy. and But the science proves it. So for me, like that really helped me. It's like the science proves it. You can look at the brains of people who have spirituality in their lives and they look different, right? Religious Religion is not a fluke, the success that it's had in our world and the, the amazing things that it's done. It's done plenty of bad things, but... I think it, it, there's a lot to be said for having a spiritual practice of some sort. It doesn't, I'm not here to, to advocate for anyone, but I would encourage anyone who thinks they don't need any of it to at least question that because I was that guy for a long time and I was beating my head against the wall and I was white knuckling life and I didn't have that like blow off valve that spirituality can have for you. Uh, for me at least. Um, so I bet you guys didn't see that coming, but that there's that, um, my buddy Kendall here 
Kendall, I've let you down. I owe you a text message. Um, what's happening with the ZK door challenge? We're going to put the ZK door challenge into Carney's hands and then good things will happen with it. Uh, we didn't make a hard plan. I kind of said some stuff and like we need to, I need to figure that out. So the, the ZK door challenge is waiting to be determined as to what's going to happen with it. We might keep it, we might do it, like, might be something where within the Facebook group of ZK Finishing School, that's what we do. Like, we, well, let's do it through the ZK Finishing School alumni. Something where we can control and talk about it after in, a, in that controlled environment of the Facebook group. Um, I'm not sure, but I apologize for not getting back to you, buddy. I, there's, it's tough, man. I, I feel like I let a lot of messages like slide through. Uh, and this is the final question, unless people add more. I, no, I got to go to bed. Um, how do you balance your time to have the different departments of the business run smoothly? Um, honestly, I wish I was more intentional with my time. That's why. Oh, Caesar, you didn't get in there. It, it when it all started, it was tough. Yes. Um, send me a message on Facebook and I will send you an invite. I'm so sorry. Um, what was I just saying? Oh, how do you balance your time to have the different departments of the business run smoothly? Uh, I wish I was more intentional. Um, I, I'm, I was listening to a business coach, um, talk about, uh, time chunking. And I was talking to my wife about my time and my time has become much more scarce, free time, or just time. It's so much harder for me to find time. I, I've said on here a lot, for a long time, I had all the time in the world. And uh, it was one of those things where, like, I just never had to get good at managing my time because I had lots of it. And now I don't have lots of time, and I need to get more intentional with managing my time and that's not something I like to think about doing I like to live by the seat of my pants and like bang 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 that's what I like to do for sure um but I know that it's it's negatively affecting me and will continue like it's it's getting in the way it's the tattoos like it's not stopping me but it sure is limiting me it's a hurdle I have to jump over the way I manage my time so that's why I have an amazing um assistant in Carney and we're going to be working to continually hone that. But I would say that I make sure to like touch base with the people in each of the departments, if you will, the different leads. Like I'm in contact with the leads as frequently as possible. Um, and so that's kind of, it's like staying in good communication helps me understand where I need to put my time. Um, it's a really poor answer to that one, but that's kind of the answer. Cool. Uh, Carnivore Drew said you need to check out the book Breath by James Nestor. Um, it gave a better scientific data on breathing and spiritual stuff. Yes, there is. That's why I. That's why I'm cool with the whole spirituality thing now because a I've experienced all the benefits. Like there's no question. I'm. I mean, I. I didn't think I would talk about this stuff on here, but like, it. It is like a massive, massive leg up in the world to have a spiritual practice. 
it's there's no question um it doesn't matter what it is but i would encourage everyone to at least think about that a little bit and i think i'm interested to read breathe but i know there i've read enough studies there is enough data to show even before i got into believing it that this stuff works that getting outside yourself and having a spiritual practice works um and so I'm, uh, I, I do like the idea of reading another book about more data because it helps you double down on your practice of whatever it is. Um, uh, so let's see. We like the product, but so I think he's talking about, I'm guessing he's talking about Hall and Lack. Um, deep bases, dry times, tacky for days. Yes. The new Holland Lack, especially in the TR base, takes a long time to dry. Um, unfortunately, that's just the reality of it. And so we bake it in the like in the booth. We we're no longer planning for twenty four hour dry uh, recoats on our gloss um, in the TR base. I think that's that's not something we can plan on anymore with the new Holland Lack. The deep base is tough. They, they call it a TR base. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it is it, the fine paints is a high performance product and it, it comes with its issues and it's not designed for application. It's designed for, for, for performance and the application and all the stuff behind it is a secondary thought, which I love, but also some days you hate because a, Sherwin-Williams product is designed to be easily applied. The buyer of Sherwin-Williams paint is the painter. Emerald was designed to be easy to apply. And guess what? It was, and we all loved it. Five Pages of Europe is designed to perform at a high level. And then the application is an afterthought. And uh, Sherwin-Williams knows enough to know that no one cares about how long their paint lasts. They care about how long their paint is perceived to last. But if you talk to the top people at Sherwin-Williams, they will tell you their paint is not, they're not designing paint to last more than seven years. That's just not what they, they're, they don't have any data that suggests that they should be trying to do that. So they don't. Um, so it's a different thing. So yes, I, I mean, it kind of comes with the territory now. It sucks the first time you find it out. They changed the formula and it just did do some stuff to it. Um, but now we're just trying to adapt. Um, DA, I don't, you have to send me a DM if you want to come on. I've made a practice now of not bringing on people live that are not planned to after the guy was on the toilet. If anyone remembers that, that was a uh, bizarre, I'm not sure he knew what he was doing when he requested to join. Um, and if I don't know you, I definitely can't bring you on. Sorry, man. Uh, or woman, I don't know who you are. Um, okay, so Eco with no heat out of your Apollo, um, definitely gonna thin. Yeah, that's that is gonna be a tough one to th- to paint. Um, un, if you do not dilute that paint, thin it somehow. I think you're gonna be struggling to put it through um, your Apollo. So yeah, I would use a probably a combination of water and an extender, um, but that's that is the tough part about um, those turbine units and the thicker paints. Um, you could try even a combination of a crock pot and um, 
a little bit of water and a little bit of uh, um, general finishes extender. Oh, no worries. See, I think that's what happened to our buddy who was on the toilet is he clicked the link by accident. I didn't know that. He's a guy I've met before and I respected his work and I was not, I was a novice at this whole live thing. Oh, that's funny too. Another guy just clicked, requested to join. Um, but yeah, I'm going to see if I can get Cindy Stumpo on for Tuesday night. She's going to be tough to get on. I didn't send her a message early enough. Um, she's intense. She's pretty amazing. She's going to be good. We're going to get her on here. Next Tuesday, I don't have a guest lined up. I've reached out. I think I might have Lou from Penn Painting on. He may not be able to make it on time. Uh, I think I might have Nick Slavic on. I reached out to him, but I don't have someone locked up. Again, I got to work on that. A lot going on. I had this like booked out list of guests. Um, oh, and I had to post last week's episode. Did every did, who did anybody see? Please, someone in the comments put down there. Did anybody see last week's live on Facebook? That I did with um, Steve Basic, the architect. Oh, you're in quarantine. That is R&D. I've been dying to be put into quarantine. Somebody give me COVID. I'm trying to get COVID so I can have to be at the shop every day. Just grinding away, testing stuff. Um, yes. Oh, Kendall, you saw the Facebook? I think you're you're on Facebook a lot. Um we did a, we're doing the, the interviews now. Oh yeah, the freaking, oh, Beach Goth saw it too. My laptop. I started a live podcast with real producers this time and a real deal architect and I didn't plug in my laptop. And I got a notification from my laptop that there was 5% left. And by the time I got, he fin I, I wanted him to let him finish his thought and not just stop. It's tough interviewing people. And I'm like, all right, I'm sitting there dying. Like, oh, man, like, I got to tell this guy. I got to get up and get my charger. But I want to, he's like saying this really awesome point. I don't want to cut him off. And I finally he finishes. And I'm like, I didn't go get my charger. And I go get, you can watch the video. Oh, they cut it out now. But I was getting my charger up into the point where I was like about to plug it in. And then the thing died. So I had to like reboot. He had to stand there. It was embarrassing. We're going to get better each time. Uh, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. on we're gonna work to have it's gonna right now it's on PCA the Paint Contractors Association it's on the PCA account um, I have the feed I have the file and I need to post it but it's 3.3 gigs and for some reason it, I can't take it from my phone and save it to my camera roll right now so I need to figure that out tomorrow but I will be posting that it was a really great interview. I think there's some stuff you guys are really going to want to hear. Um, talking about building science and how it relates to coding failure was, I think, is going to change the way a lot of us see um, paint. It cha it's changed the way I saw. I was already starting to see that, but um, yeah. Oh, so Kendall saw my Facebook and yeah, I have this like fancy microphone. Uh, and so the audio is way, way better. Um, so if you guys are not following the PCA on Facebook, you should follow them and watch them Tuesday nights. Um, I was just talking about something. I had a point I was going on and I got distracted. Um, I'm not really sure, but it's getting late. Uh, I should probably get to bed. I appreciate everyone for watching. Um, 
this one was a good one. I think there was a lot of information. I just like, I was tired. I drove back from Vermont today. I laid on the couch for like 30 minutes before this just to try to rest. But it's a long drive from Vermont. But I think the questions were great. I appreciate your questions so much, everybody. This show would be really boring if I just had a monologue with no questions. Um, so I really appreciate that and look for us on Tuesday on Facebook. Um, so yeah, that, that, um, interview was really good. I'll post it soon. Thanks guys. Everybody have a great night.